This is News Talk 980 CKNW. Thanks for being with us. Well, it's a sad thing when we say or we start a segment with the phrase as the summer winds down. But it is August 20th, so that means we are winding down. It's darker in the morning. It's darker in the evening. But that's okay. We've had some great weather here. And uh, it hasn't been great for wildfires, but we're not going to talk about that uh, right now. We are talking about summer winding down and uh, people preparing, yes, taxes and estate planning. It might be something you didn't think about during the summer when you were busy swimming in a lake or the ocean and just having fun, which we're supposed to do for the most part. But it is something that needs attention, especially when we're talking about vacation properties and what will become of them when the time comes. Well, joining us on the line to talk a bit more about this is Jamie uh, Gollenbeck. He is the Managing Director of Tax and Estate Planning with CIBC Wealth Strategies Group, and he joins us uh, from Ontario. Good morning to you. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, we um we don't I don't we have cabins here and cottages. Oh, I guess the difference is we call them cabins uh, in Ontario. They're cottages, uh, but vacation properties can be great. People love them, but you do need to think about them when uh, the time comes if you're gifting them or uh, handing them down to somebody. Absolutely, I think there are two main considerations when someone has a vacation property. Uh, first of all, is who's going to get it, uh, if they even want it. And that's the first issue, which is the sort of the non-tax issue, the soft issue. And that's easy. You just discuss it with the kids. I think it's important. But number two, of course, is the potential tax bill that could be lurking if you decide to give it away either as a gift or if you leave it to other relatives upon death. Uh, so let's look at the, the second scenario. So you, you've left the cottage to somebody. Somebody has found out, great, I just inherited this fabulous uh, cabin or cottage. Uh, what happens then? Well, on death, there's what's called a deemed disposition of all your property at fair market value. So if a parent dies and leaves their cabin or their Whistler condo or chalet or whatever it is uh, to their child, uh, then there's a disposition of fair market value. So if there's been some appreciation in the value of that, there could be capital gains tax to pay at a rate of almost 25%. So that's sort of the downside of that uh, potential, unless the cottage or the cabin or the condo qualifies as the principal residence. Which, for the most part, uh, we're talking about places that don't, and that's uh, the very nature of them being vacation properties, is you don't use them year-round. Yeah, well, that's where it actually becomes interesting because uh, the CRA, the Canada Revenue Agency, actually has a very lenient uh, administrative policy. And they say, if you have a home, and this is not primarily a rental property, so you're not renting it out on a regular basis, but basically it's a vacation home, as long as you stay there even one day a year, that can be deemed to be a principal residence for tax purposes. So in other words, it doesn't have to be where you principally live, but it has to be a place that you ordinarily inhabit even as few as one or two days a year. So if you have a home in the city and you also have a vacation property, you actually get to designate at the time that you sell the first one or on death, at death you choose which one, probably has the biggest gain or perhaps which will have the future appreciation later. And then you can determine to claim the exemption because it's one exemption per couple and that's it. Right. So it's even, even though you, you might then claim the vacation home, you, you've stayed there enough that it qualifies. It's not like you can then claim both of the, the residences. Well, that's right. So one of them is going to have a tax bill, let's say, on death. And that's where you really need to make a, uh, an appropriate decision as to which has the bigger gain. And again, it's very important when calculating the gain, 
to keep track of all your improvements and your capital additions to your property. That increases your cost base and therefore will reduce the amount of taxable profit upon sale. And that's important to keep those records. What happens if you don't keep them? Say you've built a a new sun deck, you've put a new roof on, or maybe you've added a room to your vacation cabin. Uh, What if you simply don't have the receipts? You don't have anything to show what kind of upgrades have been made? Yeah, it happens all the time. So we ask people to estimate that. And then should CRA come look at it, uh, then you're going to get into this sort of uh, debate with them. You're going to say, look, it cost me about 50000 And they say, well, maybe that's reasonable. What year did you do it? They get an estimated contractor. That seems reasonable. The best thing to do, of course, is to keep those receipts. Now, some people pay cash, and that's a whole other topic for another day. But even if you're paying cash, have a withdrawal receipt. If you take out $50,000 of cash and you did your renovation in cash, at least have that receipt, some kind of proof that you've spent the money on that addition, or at least taken it out at that point in time. And as well, I would imagine if it's a do-it-yourself project, to keep receipts of the supplies and such? Absolutely. So any supplies that go into capital improvements, obviously you can't charge yourself for your labor. That doesn't work out. Uh, but certainly any type of a capital improvements, if it's a, a waterfront property, you put a dock or a boathouse. If it's a you know property, you add another room or renovate the basement or renovate the kitchen. These are all capital improvements. Those should be added to the cost. That would reduce the capital gain and therefore reduce the tax on ultimate sale. Are are there ways to get around it or do people try and get around it by, uh, what if you gift it to somebody while you're still alive? You just add add their name to the title. Yeah, well, it doesn't really help because a gift is actually a disposition for tax purposes. Now, some people will put things into joint names. If it's with a spouse or a partner, there is actually no tax disposition. But if you are putting something into joint name with a child or gifting it to the child, that is the deemed disposition of fair market value. Uh, it's going to create a land transfer if it's registered properly uh, in the registry. And therefore, uh, there is obviously government access to those records. And therefore, it's very important to consider the tax aspects of even making a gift to anyone other than a spouse. With a spouse, there's no tax. Mm-hmm. But anyone else, child, nieces, nephews, uh, it's going to be taxable. And when is the tax owed? Is it so? If you gift it to your child, say while you're still you're gifting it while you're still alive, when do when does the tax come into play? Oh, it's, it's right away in the year of the gift. So if I were to gift my vacation property today to my children, there'd be a disposition today at fair market value. So when I did my 2017 tax return and filed it in April of 2018, I have to report that disposition at fair market value or claim the capital uh, claim the principal residence exemption when I file and return. And that's why we sort of wrote about this recently, is just to remind people that what has changed this year is that in last fall's uh, announcement, the government now requires us to declare the principal resident exemption on our tax return if we want to claim the exemption and not pay any capital gains tax. And that's new. That was new for last year. It's again for this year and going forward. So now these dispositions of properties, which course, in the past were never reported because everyone claimed the exemption are now on the CRA's radar screen. Hmm. Uh, you talked about, so that's new this year. Uh, you've also written about this, uh, talking about the good old days, uh, which were before 1982. Absolutely. Before 1982, a couple could have two, like, uh, two homes, uh, like, a, let's say, for example, husband and wife or two partners. Each of them would be able to home and they'd each be able to designate uh, that home as their principal residence. But that all changed uh, a long time ago. So so no getting around that these days. That's right. Uh, what about uh, if it's property? Does it change if we're talking about property that's out of the country? 
Well, you know, the concept is exactly the same. So, for example, if you've got a property in the United States and that's gone up in value, if you gift it or sell it, uh, there could be some U.S. issues as well. But from a Canadian perspective, again, Canada taxes worldwide income, worldwide dispositions. So if you dispose of a property located in the United States, you must report that gain on your Canadian tax return. You'd have to report a U.S. return as well, a gain on that, and there may be an offset one against the other. Interestingly, you can claim the principal residence exemption on the U.S. property if it's something that you ordinarily inhabited during the year. The problem with that from a practical perspective is that if there's a U.S. gain and there's no offsetting Canadian tax, then you actually owe U.S. tax and you've wasted your exemption. This is where it gets more complicated. You really should get good cross-border tax advice if you're dealing with U.S. property. All right. What if you're dealing with a property, and it doesn't happen that often, but I suppose it could happen, uh, what if the property has gone down in value? Well, that's a good question. So we often ask, get asked this question, if it's gone down in value, you have a loss. The problem is, is that if it's personal use property, that loss is not available. So just like if you buy a car, if you buy any kind of personal property, a capital loss on a personal property is actually not available to you. So if you do have a loss that goes down in value, well, you can report it, but you're not going to be able to use that loss against any other gains the way you could if, for example, a stock went down in value, you sold that, uh, then you'd have a loss to be used against future capital gains. All right. Uh, do you find people, it's not the, the most fun topic, when we, uh, especially when we're talking about when, when someone is, is leaving us, passing on and making sure everything is in order and they've checked this all out. Do you find people are in the position, uh, if they inherit a, a cottage or a cabin, a second property, uh, I mean, what happens if, if they haven't gone through these things, suddenly someone's in this position of paying these taxes but simply can't pay them? Well, again, a great question. So one of the solutions that we've often seen, you've even seen TV commercials on this over the last number of years, is coming up with liquidity. So if there is a disposition on death, but there's no real disposition because what's happening is the property is being transferred to the next generation, what if there's no liquidity? What if there's no cash in the estate to pay the taxes owing on that property? In the worst case scenario, you'd be forced to sell the property to raise the money. But very often we can use other things. If there's other money in the estate that's left over to pay the tax, uh, the executor should address this uh, in terms of the disposition of the estate. Uh, you, if it's your property, should figure out how that money is going to be paid. A simple solution is life insurance. Using a permanent life insurance policy to estimate the potential taxes on death can be a very seamless way because the proceeds come in tax-free as a death benefit, and those proceeds can then be used to pay the tax on death. In fact, as the advertisement says, why not get the kids who are going to inherit this vacation home to pay the premiums on your life insurance policy? Hmm. There you go. A little investment. Exactly. Um, just and just to touch on on something you'd mentioned before about the the idea that your vacation cottage can be a principal residence. You don't have to live there all year round. What happens though if you use it as a short term rental? Maybe you put it on Airbnb or you rent it out occasionally. Yeah, I mean, this is a very vague area. CRA says incidental rental is okay. The question is, what is incidental? Most practitioners that we talk to uh, would put a rule of thumb around 10%. So if you rent it out 10% of the time, probably not a big deal. Once you get over that, you're looking into potentially a rental or commercial property, uh, and that could be a problem. Other people say if you're just recovering costs in terms of cost recovery, so that you know, you've know you got the cost of property taxes, maintenance, repairs, things like that, 
as long as you're recouping less than cost, uh, then you're not really renting it out for profit. And again, it still qualifies as the principal residence. So uh, I think, you know, it's very important to look at this issue and make sure that this is not primarily a rental property because then for sure it doesn't qualify as a principal residence. All right. So where should people start? If people are hearing this and thinking, yes, I absolutely should address this. It's something I've put off. Uh, it can be a bit daunting. Where would someone start to even uh, begin the process of, of, of making sure everything's set right in place? Well, I think it's very important as part of the estate plan. So when you go to speak to a lawyer, a lawyer who's experienced with drafting wills, you mention this. You say, here are my assets. I'm concerned that I'm going to have a disposition of these assets. I want to make sure I have the right liquidity. I also want to make sure that the right assets go to the right people. I've got kids living in Canada. I want them to get the property here. I've got kids living overseas. They're going to get the cash. And a lawyer can really help you draft the most appropriate will to ensure that everyone is treated fairly, fairly being the way that you want, but also respect the laws, things like Will's Variation Law in B.C., where you've got to really make sure that if you're leaving someone out, uh, you're not following a file of these rules. I think a lawyer is a great place to start. Very, uh, very good advice. Thank you so much uh, for joining us, uh, for bringing us uh, up to date on this. As I mentioned, probably uh, not the first thing people like to talk about all the time, especially while we're still in the summer months, uh, but important uh, information. Uh, thank you again so much. My pleasure. Thank you. That is uh, Jamie Gollenbeck. He is the Managing Director of Tax and Estate Planning with CIBC Wealth Strategies Group in Toronto, uh, talking about exactly that, tax and estate planning, especially if you have that second home, that condo, maybe you have a rental property somewhere, you have a cabin or a cottage, uh, best to get to everything in order sooner rather than later. Vancouver's News, Vancouver's Talk. This is News Talk 980 CKNW.